Well, we're all here, and it's great that we can learn together, grow together, and in our worship, experience God's love once more. I want to tell you a parable. And this parable isn't in the Bible. It's an interesting parable, and I want you, uh, you young folk, and I think we should start a sort of a tradition that the young people should be sitting right in the front, not as far away as possible from me. I wonder why that should be. You would, yeah. This is the parable about a donkey, or a mule. Mules are associated with being stubborn. I don't know about this one. Anyway, there was a farmer who owned a very old mule. And one day, this stubborn mule fell into the farmer's well. The farmer heard the mule. What noises do mules make? Eeyore. Yeah, that's Eeyore. That's where he gets his name from. Eeyore. That's the name of the mule. Okay. Makes this uh, very distressing noise from the bottom of the well. After carefully assessing the situation, the farmer, being a very cautious and rather cruel farmer, had a little sympathy for the mule, but decided that neither the old well, which was dry, or the old donkey, which was very old, was worth the trouble of saving. So he thought, I can solve two problems at one time. I know what I'll do. I will fill in the well with the donkey in it. So he called his neighbors together and they started to shovel all sorts of soil and grit and rubble. And it fell on the old mule. And first of all, he was frightened and hysterical. But, as the farmer and his neighbours continued to shovel all this dirt on the mule's back, he had a little thought. And he thought to himself, I know what I'll do. As this rubble comes down, I am going to shake it off and step up. Shake it off and step up. Shake it off and step up. And actually he developed a bit of a rhythm. He could have almost put it into, into a song. Well, this happened blow by blow, shovel by shovel, load by load, all the time. And this poor donkey felt terribly distressed. But he kept doing this, shaking it off and stepping up, shaking it off and stepping it up. And do you know what happened? It wasn't long before the old mule, this old wise, stubborn donkey, battered and exhausted, stepped triumphantly out of the well and into the lush green paddock. I don't know if that story is true, but it's a good story. Why am I telling it to you? Well, it sometimes seems like we are buried by all our troubles, our difficulties, all these things that seem to cloud in upon us, crush us. And we begin to think, is there any hope? Sometimes we think, do you know what? Life isn't fair. 
And some people get stuck and they become embittered. They just stay in the well and that's the end of them. But if we can shake it off, step up, shake it off, step up, we might find that we can triumph. And that is why one of the things that um, the New Testament teaches us, that we need to develop good, healthy attitudes. And the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the young church, with young believers, said, if you are going to overcome your troubles, then you need the attitude that Jesus had. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, death on the cross, but God exalted him. And when they buried Jesus, he rose again. And when they buried this poor donkey, he rose too. He triumphed over his adversity. We can do that. Not simply by trying harder, though there's a place for that, but perhaps for trusting a bit more. Trying, yes but trusting more and looking to the Lord Jesus. Do you know, some of the difficulties that come our way, these adversities, big words for children, have the potential not to bury us, but to bless us. And we can turn these difficult experiences, perhaps which we'll never understand in this life, into a stepping stone into greater things. And that is the lesson that you learn from this, the parable of the mule. And when troubles come upon you, think about that. And say, what's my attitude like? What's my attitude like? Is it like the Lord Jesus? Am I any different to anybody else because I put my trust in him? I hope so. So that when they come, we are ready. They won't bury us. But will be an opportunity to bless. It can be so, even when life is hard and difficult. So the motto is, don't give up. In the situations that you and I face, don't give up. Some of you have given up on yourselves, much less on God or on prayer and so on. Don't do that. Don't give up. When life is unfair, when people are unkind, when your parents, you know, your parents, they don't understand you, they haven't lived long enough. When... Life is so difficult. Think of the Winter Olympics. We were listening in the car to Elsie Christie. Once she trained hard for three years, gave up everything to be disciplined and ready, and she's in the Winter Olympics. One slip, and it's finished. How unfair is that? But that's a part of life. Learning together in all the hardships. Don't give up. What are you to do? turning our failures into success. Shake it off and step up and give ourselves to the Lord Jesus, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our tongue, our mind, but supremely our hearts. And that's going to be our prayer now that I want you to pray as it comes up in front of you. Thank you. There it is. Now I want us to think about what we've heard and... uh, It's in two parts, so we'll have a pause there where it says that you may pray in me, and then we'll go on to the second part of the prayer about giving our heart. So look at this. Own this prayer. Don't just use the words. Own it. So that when you go back to work, back to school, back to the situations in which you find yourself, this would be true of you. 
Not just a Sunday thing, but hands, feet, eyes, tongue, mind, will, heart. The transformation of the grace of God. So let's read this together. Let's begin. Lord Jesus, I give you my hands to do your work. I give you my feet to go your way. I give you my eyes to see as you do. I give you my tongue to speak your word. I give you my mind that you may think in me. I give you my spirit that you may pray in me. Above all, I give you my heart that you may live in me for all mankind. I give you my whole self that you may grow in me so that it is you, Lord Jesus, who live and work and pray in me. Amen. We're going to read from Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 16, and in the Church Bible, that's page 1050. We have a great God, we have a faithful God, and uh, this is his word that we're going to read, and it's a parable that Jesus used to teach. So we're going to read from Luke, chapter 16, verse 19, to the end of the chapter. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises 
from the dead. May we pray together. Lord, we come to you today and as we have heard your word and as we believe it and take it to heart, we ask now that in our praying there may be that mark of authenticity and sincerity that we may be receptive in heart and mind as we come to you personally and collectively as a company of people and with all of our varied capacities and differences and experiences thus far we come to you just as we are seeking once more to find your grace to help in our time of need. And we are mindful as a church there are ongoing, prevailing needs that families and individuals face. We pray for those who know in a very real way what it is to experience ill health and all of its challenge and the sense of apprehension as to the outcome of treatment. Lord, make us to be part of a healing community of those who are grieving and those who are needy, that together we learn and grow and empathize. Here and some of us who haven't really externalized what are our deepest needs. May your spirit now be our comforter and our guide, our hope, one who consoles and renews. And we thank you for new beginnings, new challenges, new horizons of opportunity for blessing and service. And even yet, Lord, in these new surroundings we are humbled and thankful for the way that you stirred our hearts and challenged us to give. And we pray that this place would be a real source of blessing in the generations that are yet to come. And we think of the young folk now settling into their groups. We thank you for all their teachers. Thank you for the preparation that they've done throughout the week. And that ongoing instruction that will stand them in good stead in the coming days. We pray for your blessing on all our young people and those who are away at college, working. We pray that they will know your blessing. We commend them to you today. And we thank you for the opportunity to take time out to come together in this way. Would you speak to us? Open our hearts and minds and make us receptive with our urgency to know what your Spirit is saying to the Church even in these momentous days in which we live. Come to us in all the variety of our needs and hear all our heartfelt prayers now as we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.
we're going to sing a hymn. Uh, this is um, a hymn that we haven't sung for quite a while, and you will notice following the reading that this hymn and the concluding hymn makes reference to what Jesus spoke about here in terms of what, it, what hell is. Uh, I have to confess to you that uh, when uh, this series, I put this series together, I looked at Luke 16 and I thought, do we really need to look at this? The whole series in these contrasting parables. And I was challenged really to say it would be unfair and unwise. And it may even be a root of unbelief not to look at a passage like this and to try to think it through, what it has to say to us today as God's people. So think about that and this hymn that we're going to sing, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. Please stand. Two weeks ago, uh, I was at the men's breakfast together with some of uh, the men here this morning. Wellesley was speaking, and halfway through his talk, he said, as we were sitting around tables, because uh, part of his introduction was that when his grandmother died, he was aware there was something, even though as a, as a child, there's life after death. So, he suggested that uh, around our tables, we should ask, do we believe that? So, I deliberately chose to sit, and I think this should be a lesson to all of us men, to the people I didn't know before, so that we could talk, not just sit next to the Baptists, you know, because you know where they're coming from. Um, and uh, we were all sitting silently. We had two minutes, which wasn't very long, and that's just to go straight into, is there life after death? This very polite gentleman says, you know, I'd like to have faith, but in a world in which we live, with all of these things, how can you possibly believe in God? So, no. Second one said, I'm just keeping my options open. I don't know. I don't know. Third one said, definitely no. When you're dead, you are dead, and that's it. Nothing. And it came to my turn, and I said, well, you know what I think doesn't really matter, but I do take seriously the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this chap said, with very quite polite, it wasn't, uh, I believe that Jesus lived, but I can't accept the resurrection. Well, what do you think? What do you believe? If you were around that table, what would you say? Honestly. And of course, even quoting not just the Bible, but what Jesus says doesn't carry much weight with people today. What do you think? Uh, there's a chart that's going to come up in front of you uh, to try to fill in the gaps, if we can have it. Please. Here it is. I, want, I hope you can see that. I'll leave it up for a bit so that it should be much bigger than... Oh yes, that's good. Okay. Um, even among Christian people, you know, we've lost a loved one, a child perhaps, or a parent. Or, and where are they now? Well, I've just taken this and tried to give... It doesn't say everything. It says enough just for us to think this through. When people die, what happens? Now, why did Jesus give a parable like this, such a haunting, disturbing one? The gentle Jesus, who is meek and mild, gives this very disturbing parable. Somebody going to answer that phone? Stand up, whoever it is. <laughs> Don't name and shame. At death, the soul and the spirit separate from the body. The ultimate destiny is determined 
by each person's spiritual condition, i.e. believer, unbeliever. If unbeliever, in the grave or the crematorium, the soul is in torment, according to this parable. Now, I know it doesn't say everything, it says something. For the believer, body in the grave or the crematorium, the soul, the spirit, with Abraham. In the King James Version, Abraham's bosom, by Abraham's side in paradise. Jesus' comment to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. An interesting discussion about that. Okay, that's that thing. But what about when the whole of life comes to an end? The resurrection of the just and the unjust, as the creed says. The body of the unbeliever, the spirit, the soul of the unbeliever remains in torment awaiting the final judgment. What the Bible calls the second death. The body of the believer is resurrected at Christ's coming and the spirit absent from the body present with the Lord. That's at least something to say when we, and often there's an emotional dimension and a rending of the human ties which we're not always thinking clearly. So we're going to look with that in mind at this parable. Have you ever really considered just how radical the parables of Jesus are? They are like keys into the kingdom of heaven and possibly there is the danger, if we can go on, Emily, please, thank you, um, of, you know, perhaps we've, like me, you've had the, the parables at Sunday school, and that's a privilege, and you've been brought up with knowing about the sower, knowing about the good Samaritan, and they're great stories. They are. But you know, they are much more radical than we appreciate. Maybe the familiarity has glossed over how cutting edge, how radical they really are, as is the case here. So in Luke 16, 19 to 31, I suggest to you is one of the most disturbing of Jesus' parables. Why did he give it? He loves us. He's going to lay down his life for us. Does he want to traumatize us? No. But he wants us to, to think clearly about this journey in life. So let's consider this together and think through what it means for us as believers and possibly even here this morning unbelievers as well. What we've observed so far about this series is just how extreme these parables were when they were originally given. And what Jesus' method is this. First of all, he invites us into the story, into the narrative. You can't help be moved. There was almost an atmosphere when that passage was read. It's quite disturbing. Deliberately, I think. Compels us to draw us into the narrative and then to challenge us about the contrast. Could you ever have a greater contrast of two people and two destinies? I don't think so. And then, thirdly, simply this, to compel us to say, what does it say to me now? You can see what Jesus is doing. Incidentally, I'll give you one little 
indication and the context is always important. How often we say this, don't we? A text without the context is a con. And I'm not yet to do that. So, look, look at verse 13 of Luke 16. It's a, Pharisees are, if you like, listening in to Jesus' discussion with the disciples. And he's talking to his followers here. And in verse 13, Luke 16, no one can serve two masters. Either he will love, he, sorry, he, either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can have God and money. We need God and money, but we can't serve them. Whom do we serve? Now that was a, a, a big challenge to the Pharisees. Verse 40, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering. It was a culture of cynicism, just like ours today. Who is going to listen to this, I ask you? So it wasn't easy. So very quickly then, let's look at um, three contrasts. The first, the contrast in life. Verses 19 to 21, there's the rich man. It's interesting in the news this morning, isn't there, that the president of the Ukraine, what has really galvanized the opposition as much as anything is the opulence, the extravagance of this man in terms of the grinding poverty of his people. Well, these things stir us up. The contrast between the rich and the poor, the opulence, the extravagance, the excessive, lifestyle, but only for himself, nobody else. And the poor man, well, that's life. This parable has been influential in liberation theology, where people have politicized this for another day. The second contrast, the contrast in life, the contrast in death, is an interesting comment, observation. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the rich. Uh, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died. That happens. That's what happens to people. We, un we, we die. It's this very brief journey in life. The rich and the poor. It's a great leveler. We know that. One has a great funeral. Very religious, perhaps. The other, there's no account. Interesting. No account of burial. The rich man buried with, perhaps, the extravagance. What they used to call when I was a child, we need a good send-off. It's an interesting thing. Lots of, our society has lost that. We don't go to funerals like we used to. I met a man in the village whose best friend had died... And I'll never forget, and I feel, still feel a bit bad about this. I said, I'll see you at the funeral. He said, I don't go to funerals. Well, then I said, you should be ashamed of yourself. Fancy me saying that to him. He always avoided me ever since, and I felt sorry that I said it. But in some cultures, not to go is, is, is profound disrespect. We are together. Something, when somebody dies, something of us dies. The contrast in life, contrast in death, the contrast in eternity. Verses 23 to 31 is the substance of this parable. What do you make of it? I don't think you can just say it's poetic. It's not simply symbolism. Contrast in eternity. 
C.S. Lewis, so influential, a great apologist, was going through a parish church and he saw an inscription on, on a gravestone that it, this was what was on the stone. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and nowhere to go. And C.S. Lewis said, I bet he wished that were so. There is a place to go, and he's ill-prepared. A word of caution here, because this is fraught with all sorts of potential misunderstandings and misinterpretations. We pose a question here. Did God condemn the rich man to this terrible fate because he was wealthy? If that is the case, we're all in trouble here today. Every one of us. And conversely, did Lazarus, the poor man, receive bliss and joy because he was poor. That's where this liberation theology has come in and it's caused a great deal of difficulty. No. No to both. Scripture says that where we place our faith determines our destiny. Let me just read a, a verse to you from John, the last verse of John 3 and verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains upon him. Now I know we could say, well what about those who've never heard? What about babies who've died? Okay, there are all sorts of issues, but that's not where we're at now. It's about us, not about other people. That could keep for another day. The rich man's trust was in himself and in the world in which he lived and not the kingdom of God. Lazarus, as he was called, is, it's a Latinized version of Eliezer, which means, God is my help. And in life, there are choices that we make, and we will say, God is my help. God is my help. God willing. I trust him. I don't want to be too morbid here, but um, I have a fascination to see how the changes on inscriptions, and particularly in gravestones and in buildings dedicated to God, we, we don't have one. Perhaps we should put one here. The first year I came to Longcrendon, we had a holiday in Inverness, and the church organist died. I came back to take the funeral, and... That week, we just happened to be going through a parish church and I saw this inscription, which I'll never forget. Passenger pause as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so must you be. Therefore, prepare to follow me. However young, however old, however rich, however poor, however religious or irreligious. It's quite something, isn't it? So this is very disturbing. I hope you are finding it as disturbing as I am. Let me suggest four misconceptions about hell. You often hear in, in, in conversation, and lots of people make jokes about it. I don't think we should do that. The first misconception is this. 
you'll hear people say something like this. Well, if there is a hell, it will be a relief compared to the suffering we endure in this life. And, you know, there are people today who endure horrendous suffering such as is inconceivable to all of us here today. Many parts of the world, it's almost like a living hell. And we know little about that. But will it be a relief? Lazarus, sure, suffered terribly, and life wasn't unfair, and it never is. The rich man was now enduring torment. The agony, the word is deliberately used four times to make an impression. And his grief is far greater than that of the poor man in his life. The second misconception is this. Surely, hell is based on fears of the imagination. When we die, nothing. That was a sincere opinion two weeks ago of this very well-educated uh, young man at the table when we had breakfast. But what if he's wrong? All this stuff about hell is based on the imagination and the fears that are induced perhaps by the church. Some people still to this day accuse the Catholic church of inducing fears to hold on to their people. When we die, we will feel and know nothing. Last year, John Stott died, and he was a great teacher. And I learned perhaps more from him than any other. And he struggled with this terribly. Disturbed him deeply. If you have a high view of the Bible, this will trouble you. But the point of the parable that Jesus gives, and okay, we mustn't push it too far, is this, that in this story, however, it shows the opposite. The rich man was aware of himself. He sees, he feels, he talks, he tastes, he remembers, and all with regret. It's a very haunting thing, isn't it? So I don't think that's very helpful. And here's a third misconception. Hell won't be so bad, really. I mean, I'll be there with all my pals and all my friends and we had a good time here, we'll, we'll, we'll just carry on and have a good time there. What the picture that you have here is that actually he's alone. One of the haunting things about modern society and not only among elderly people is this haunting loneliness. And it can induce all sorts of symptoms psychologically and physically. And the last misconception is this, that after I'm in hell for a while, somebody will pray me out, and the church has often encouraged this. Going through the mediator of the priest, and, and perhaps all the good things that you've done outweigh all the bad things, and I'll keep my fingers crossed. Well, in verse 26, and besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here cannot, nor can anyone cross over from here to us. There is no bridge far enough, and hell will not freeze over. Dante, I know 
the medievals and the uh, scholars and artists have over, overdone this. The devil becomes a character with a, a fork and a tail and uh, that sort of thing. That hasn't helped. In his the, the Divine Comedy, the Inferno, he says this. Speaking about hell, personalizing hell, hell says, I am the way into the city of woe. I am the way to a forsaken people. I am the way into eternal sorrow. And the inscription, Abandon all hope, you who enter here. Okay, that's Dante. What would we say? And if, of course, you do take Jesus seriously, then this should urge us to be quite clear ourselves about our commitment. And it's no good relying on our parents. You see, the conclusion to this parable is, look, verse 30, he's saying, look, no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone rises from the dead, people will believe. They'll repent. The reply is quite salutary. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now it is true, after Pentecost, many of the priests and scribes believed Saul of Tarsus was a scribe. So you can't write people off. That's not what we can do. So let's try to conclude. What's the real tragedy? What is it? As we think about how God has made it, how we are wired up, what is our spiritual DNA? The real tra tragedy of this parable is not the injustices of life. Yes, let's support the food banks, which the bishops and politicians are speaking about. But if our gospel ends there, yeah, you want to clear this, clean the streets and show that the church is active. But if it ends there, we've missed the point, haven't we? Surely. It's not the injustices and the inadequacies, the rich and the poor. Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. Not because it is so, but because of how we are made. So, if it's not the injustices of life, the inequalities, the rich and the poor. The real issue here is that this rich man, knowing that salvation depends on repentance, knowing it, he's got the law and the prophets. He says, by the way, Father Abraham, he's a child of the covenant. What a privilege. Religion can only go so far, but not far enough if we refuse God's offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And that's the tipping point here. Can you imagine when Jesus finished? You see, they hounded him. They really wanted to kill him. He was saying things that they recoiled with. They, they were offended. They were mortified. Do, I wonder if we really grasp that when we think about these parables 2,000 years later. But what a difference if they heard Jesus speak like this and said, you know, I must trust him for myself. There is no other good enough 
to pay the price of sin. He only, he only can unlock the gates of heaven and let me in, as the hymn writer says. So we shouldn't refuse God's grace. God forbid that we should think, I'll do God a favour and become a Christian. No. Here is the most unspeakable joy and blessing that ever could be conferred upon us in this life. What a blessing. God's generous offer of grace and forgiveness is our greatest need. We are not self-sufficient. And if in the language of the Bible we should say or think that we don't need this, we don't need, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is it's not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, finally, this morning, in this parable, I didn't really want to preach at all. I would urge you to come to Jesus yourself. Come to him yourself. Whatever your age, background, church experience, or none, or the injustices of life, all of these things, that you have to trust him for yourself. Believe in him. And receive Receive the grace that he offers. That's what this parable teaches us with a perhaps greater sense of urgency. And Jesus gave it. And that's his word to us today. So may we pray together. And we take just a few moments to quietly reflect ourselves can't think about anybody else now though we all have friends and family who as far as we can tell don't really trust in the Lord Jesus so in these quiet moments if we and put ourselves right before him. He's just a prayer away. And Lord Jesus, if we find it difficult to put into words, you know our hearts, you know our longings. So we ask that you would hear our prayers now. And that prayer of faith, which is to trust you even though we have unanswered questions help us now in these moments to trust in you with all our hearts and not to rely on our own understanding and Lord Jesus give us the courage to externalize that prayer and talk to other people help us to overcome if we are self-conscious just to express this and through that begin to grow and understand and to love and Lord we can't answer these issues these questions we really don't know 
all we can do here is to take your word seriously and apply it to ourselves. So help us to trust you. Perhaps for the very first time today and we know that you are faithful and just and will forgive us. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Mm-hmm.